big problem out east of Birds Hill Park yesterday. They were out without power, about 890 customers in all. And if you live in that neighborhood, you know what it was like to be without power pretty much all day. In fact, something that I'm pretty sure I've never seen, Brett, was that Hydra was suggesting people that lived in that part of the province to seek alternate shelter for the night and to stay with friends or maybe go to a hotel, whatever they needed to do because they weren't anticipating being able to fix the outage until about 8 o'clock this this morning at the very earliest, with, which would have meant almost 24 hours without power for a lot of people. Well, they managed to get things up and running just after 11 o'clock last night. I'm curious if there's anybody out there that went out and sought alternate shelter, as was suggested early yesterday evening, 204-780-6868. And does this give you any cause for alarm? Like, how long could we be without power before it would be an absolute disaster? You see the forecast coming Mm -hmm. for the next week, right? We're not getting back up above minus teens as daytime highs anytime soon after we get through this you know, this warmer day today with all the snow. And you imagine if we had something like what they had in Quebec with the ice storm and you had no power for days and days in the cold. What an absolutely unmitigated disaster it would be. Yeah, when I look at, uh, whenever you hear about these big storms that happen with these these monster storms, whether it's... uh, uh, some like a this bomb cyclone, or you see these these giant weather storms that hit the eastern uh, seaboard, and you hear about power being out for millions of people for days on end. I mean, typically here when there is a power outage to report, I think at most I've seen one go for a couple of days here in in southern Manitoba. But typically we can get the power back quickly. And yeah, I don't think that I've ever seen. Uh, that kind of advisory from Manitoba Hydro. To, that certainly made me raise an eyebrow this morning when I came in and was kind of recapping everything and thought, whoa. Yeah, I was going to ask you because you've been working news desk for a long time around here and you have communication with Manitoba Hydro when you're working those shifts. We know about these outages. And I was wondering if you'd ever seen a dire piece of advice like that sent out. No, I have not seen that. So I think good on them for it. Better you know safe good than po- sorry. You know what? Really good point. Uh, right? And that's a case of under promise over deliver versus the other way around. I would hate for them to be saying, yeah, we should have it fixed by 11. And then 11 o'clock comes around. Mm, it might not be till tomorrow morning. I'd rather them say that it's likely not going to be until tomorrow morning and then have them fix it by 11. You know, I, not everything Manitoba Hydro does is right, but that's. That's uh, the way I would prefer to see any business do it, over pro- uh, under-promise and over-deliver. I mean, just look at what happens in this particular studio. The temperature drops a couple of degrees and right. we're, we sit around shivering. Uh, that's in a span of a few minutes. So if you've got no power for 12 hours, 24 hours, I, I, how, how cold do you think it would get in your home? If you had no power for... Well, I we had an issue with the furnace uh, a few years back, and we had no <laughs> furnace for three days oh my in God. November, so we borrowed every space heater we could. We had friends... Do you remember when that propane explosion was in southeastern Manitoba? Yep. I had a buddy in Niverville who was without heat in his house for three, four days, and so we took a couple of space heaters to him. So I've been down that road, and you know, the temperature says 11, 12, 13 degrees 
freezing your house. That is really darn cold. Yeah. It is cold I, because I remember when I uh, lived in uh, I lived in my friend's basement. He would keep the temperature in the house around eighteen degrees. So in the basement, especially in the winter, I think it would be around thirteen, fourteen degrees, which I sort of got used to in a strange way. And I I like that kind of uh, get snug as a bug in a rug sort of thing in bed when it's nice and cold, and then I just fall asleep and calm, and I barely move. Whereas in the summertime, if it's hot, you know, you're flailing around and your blankets and 17, you know, your blankets over here and your undersheets over there and pillows are scattered across the room. When it's nice and cold, I can sleep okay. But that, even that in hindsight was too cold. Well, I have to tell you, when stuff like that happens, it makes me think about purchasing a backup generator. Yep. And it also makes me wonder if I should be installing a, a wood stove in one part of my house, whether it be in the basement or or in a living room or something like that, uh, as a backup. Because my mom used to basically keep her house warm with a wood stove out in Boys Vane for most of the winter uh, before they got uh, dependable power out there because they had propane, wood, or electricity. And to heat a house built in like eight, late 1800s, early 1900s by electricity got really, really expensive. And for the most part, if it was minus 20 or warmer, they could keep the house warm with a wood stove centrally located in the middle of the home. I think maybe, you know... We don't think about that anymore. The backup plans. We're not good at it. No. I'm sure of it. I had a wood stove in my house. Did you? It's one of the reasons why we bought it. You found it charming? Yeah, it looked really nice. (laughs) looked rustic. Never used it. Never used it. (laughs) Pain in the rear end to use for the most part. Hey, uh, Swan River having their own water emergency. We'll reach out to them, find out how they're dealing with that in Swan River. The hydro emergency uh, east of Birds Hill Park, that is done. And tonight, the President of the United States addresses the, you know, they, they call it the State of the Union address, addressing the nation. He's really addressing the world. Let's be honest about it. Mm-hmm. We'll uh, get a preview of that later on this morning as well. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you behind the glass. Jerry's ever present. Good to see you, Jerry. How are you doing this morning, my friend? I'm doing all right. Oh, uh, yeah. You don't sound so sure. I'm a bit sore, but I'm good. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Having coffee, talking, we're going to talk about water. Yes. And our propensity for uh, using uh, bottled water or tap water. What do we use? We'll have a round table. Tristan Field-Jones in for Chantilly Vidal today. And I noticed that you're a little red in the face today, Brett McGarry. I am red in the face. Why is that? It, it, I, I confess, I take long showers. You're not perpetually embarrassed. There's something else going on. <laughs> I took a really long shower. <laughs> I take long showers, and uh, particularly when I'm really tired at 3 in the morning or 3.30, as I drag myself out of bed a little too late, and I hop in the shower. And I, the thing is, I live in an apartment where if I take a shower during the day, it's constantly interrupted. If someone flushes the toilet, someone does the, turns on their tap, the water pressure is constantly changing. It's hot, it's cold, it's hot, it's cold. So it's nice to have just an, uh, an uninterrupted shower. And I kind of, I don't I don't fall asleep, but I kind of go into that sort of trance. And next thing I know, it's been 15 minutes. And it's today, not all business in there. And today it was, uh, apparently the water was a little hot because my face... <laughs> I feel like I, I'm sunburned. 
I think I burned myself in the shower. I shouldn't be laughing at you because I come out of the shower typically like one half of my body is completely red because I like the water hot. But we're talking about water and how much uh, water and how little water people in Swan River have at their disposal right now. But uh, how long was that shower that you had this morning? If you were to ballpark it. 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Do you want to know how much water you used? Yes. Why don't we tell you after? Okay. We listened to this report from Zara Premji, uh, who was up in Swan River. Progress is being made in the goal and the plan to restore water service to that community of 4,000 in western Manitoba. And the town declared a state of emergency on the weekend as the water supply started dwindling. Yesterday, the town discovered the problem was a mechanical issue with the pumps themselves and multiple issues with the wells. They have managed to get some water flowing from one of the wells to the treatment facility. Global News reporter Zara Premji was in Swan River yesterday and spoke to residents about how they are conserving water. Karen Johnson is quickly stocking up. Thanks. As the water supply continues to dwindle in her home. I've uh, filled uh, containers for water and the pressure is still there but uh, it comes in spurts. Depleting water supplies for the nearly 4,000 people living in town because of mechanical issues with Swan River's water pumps and wells. I figured it was only in South Africa that they had the water situation. The state of emergency declared in Swan River Sunday has forced residents to cut back on all the essentials. Just not doing any washing or bathing or showering. It's kind of rough. No showers, no shaves, no laundry. And for those running out of water, there's a place to turn to. Stocked and waiting thanks to donors and volunteers, crates of water loaded into the vehicles of Swan River residents. Mr. Six, that it? I filled up the top just for uh, flushing toilets uh, whenever. And if that's not an option, porta potties set up at the local gas station. Crews have managed to get some water flowing, but we'll need to continue filling the water reserve for the town with that before fixing the problem. As the state of emergency continues until likely Thursday, residents will continue to come to this community hub to stock up on water and avoid using their pipes as much as possible. Zara Premji, Global News, Swan River. Now, in light of this state of emergency, it has Manitobans and if it doesn't have you thinking it should have you thinking about how they use water. Global News reporter Amber Magookan looked at how much water the average Canadian consumes on a daily basis. From running the tap and flushing the toilet, Canadians use a lot of water, but it's something Winnipegger Kevin Friedman hopes to change. A lot of people are just unaware of their water use. For the past 10 years, he challenges himself every March to only use 25 litres of water per day, cutting the typical Canadian's consumption by 90%. I travelled a lot and I had to shower you know, with, with buckets and with sponges in the past and uh, I had to wash my own laundry by hand and I, I knew how to use a lot less water. The average Manitoban uses just over 300 litres of water per day. That's more than 600 water bottles. Across the country, consumption breaks down to 35% between showers and baths, 30 from toilets, 20 from laundry, 10 from drinking and cooking, and 5% to cleaning. I can't imagine how one person can use that water in a day. But others can see how easily water gets used. I'm a real big cook, so I spend a lot of time in my kitchen, so I do use a lot of water, yeah. 
Yeah. I don't waste water, but I do use a lot of it. Friedman knows scaling back to 25 liters is hard, but says people can cut their use with simple changes. Three minutes less in the shower. So if you can do three minutes less in the shower, you've saved 25 liters of water. Amber McGookin, Global News. Just a quick pause on the water conversation. Uh, we're told at, uh, by a listener that there is heavy snow and near zero visibility on Highway 13, close to the TransCanada, east of Portage La Prairie. Uh, keep those uh, tips coming, if you would. 204-780-6868, hands-free, and when you can do it safely. Back to the water discussion, the Manitoba Eco Network has a few more tips for reducing your water use, not using water bottles, making sure your dishwasher and laundry machines are full before turning them on, and swapping out an old shower head. This can be an unpopular decision for a lot of people for a low-flow alternative. I think a lot of times when you try it on a short term and you commit to it for a short term, you realize it's not as much work uh, and it's not as hard to build into your routine as you thought it might be. That's Duncan Stokes with the Manitoba Eco Network. Now you had you had said how long was my 15 minute shower this morning which may have been 20 minutes. I'd I don't know. Uh, you need to put a stopwatch yeah. on it. Well, here's the thing, right? We're looking at the graph that is suggesting that the average Canadian uses 309 liters per person per day. Yep. And both of us were like, no way. There's yeah. no way. And I'm thinking, four people in my house, 1,200 liters. How could we possibly get there? Well, the average eight-minute shower uses 62 liters of water. Some power showers can use up to 136 liters in eight minutes. So there, there's every chance, Brett, that your shower used well over 120 liters of water this morning. Now, I, I do have a low flow shower head, not by choice. They just I came home one day and it was there. And I was really upset. I felt like I was in a Seinfeld episode where I needed to go buy a black market elephant uh, cleaning shower head, Kramer style. (laughs) (laughs) And put like a, like a, uh, not a trash compactor, the carburetor. (laughs) Yeah, I got to make that. In the drain. I got to make some, uh, some radish uh, flowers in the shower. No. Um... (laughs) But yeah, so I have the low flow, and I think that actually ended up contributing to to one of the reasons why I have a tendency to take longer showers. And I and but after hearing these these numbers, when you put it into this kind of perspective, that's uh, it's a bit of a wake up call. And I think I need to get my get my act together when it comes to my water use. I can't. I never would have guessed three hundred liters of water in a day. That's shameful. So I serve tables for probably off and on for 10 years of my life. And I go to a table and then offer a beverage. No, I'm fine. I'll just have a water. I think water qualifies as a beverage. So I, you know, do you know how to fancy up a a glass of water with ice in it? Put scotch in it. That that's one option. (laughs) Put a chunk of slice of lemon in it. You can do that. Or you can just call it a Shoal Lake cocktail. Shoal Lake oh, cocktail. Oh, nice. Go. Done. Oh, bada nice. bing, bada boom. Mackling McGarry in the morning. Tristan Field Jones, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, and behind the glass, Jerry. We are missing uh, Shanalee Vidal today. She's uh, away for a couple of days. She's in Manchester, England, and joining the World uh, Women's Roller Derby Championship or some 
some for it. Rona Debbie. Rona Debbie. I didn't even, yeah. Anyway, uh, we'll uh, welcome Shanalee back next week. In the meantime, we're stuck with Tristan Field Jones. Yeah, I know. City water versus bottle water. This is a conversation we had yesterday in light of what's going on up in Swan River. And the whole idea of, do you even use bottled water or do you even drink tap water? Which one of you said you didn't like tap water? I don't drink tap water. Why? Why? I glass, Jerry. What's the uh, problem well, there, bud? The, the first year I lived in Winnipeg, uh, there wasn't one week went by that my tap water wasn't brown. Not one week went by that at least one day, at least one day, the water wasn't brown. Mm. Um, and then when it wasn't brown, there was usually some kind of a yellow hue to it, and it had an oily film on top. Therefore, I wasn't drinking it. Yeah, that's just extra flavor. You should be paying extra for that. <laughs> yeah. so it's called the shoal white. Yeah, exactly. Come on. <laughs> so so I, I will not drink uh, tap water. Okay. Hmm. Will and you I'll, drink it through like a Brita filter? I even when I put it through the Brita filter, it it still had that funky uh, color to it. So, hmm. Mister Vegetarian well, is drinking bottled water. Is that what I'm come to I, understand? I, I I go to the store and I refill my my big jugs at uh, the uh, the reverse osmosis. <laughs> <laughs> come on, you guys! <laughs> what? I thought it too. Machine. Yeah. <laughs> I was just picturing Jerry carrying the big jugs. That's all. <laughs> You know, with the, the, the old uh, wooden dowel across the back. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Walking down Portage Avenue with those buckets over. Kelly Moore bringing right. some much-needed dignity to the conversation right That's here. That's right. Well, see, I find that interesting, Jerry, because uh, I always filter. Uh, we have a Brita filter at home, and I always filter uh, the tap water. And it's tasted fine for me. I, I visit a buddy of mine fairly regularly, and they never use Brita filters or any filter until recently. And I could I noticed the difference between drinking tap water and you know having the filter water. And I said, J- just get a filter. They're relatively cheap. It doesn't take much. And he noticed it right away too. It just tastes fresher, and and hmm. I feel more hydrated, frankly, after having the filtered water. More hydrated. Yeah, I don't wow. know. I don't know what it maybe. You can tell it, the different levels of hydration from the different water. <laughs> He's Come Justin on. Field Jones. <laughs> it, it, it just fine tune machine. It just feels better. That's that's the best way to describe it. That's my opinion. Though. It's, I mean, it's so not as thick saying? and syrupy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It isn't viscous. You know, you you can't you can tell the difference between that and molasses. You know it, that sort of it, thing. It, it, it's. It's almost like you're saying it's wetter. <laughs> the water is wetter. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Uh, uh, good for you for uh, using the, sliding the word viscous into the conversation well, this yeah, morning, by yeah. the way. I actually find, and, and maybe it's just because I the odd time I do buy bottled water, I'll, I get bottled water to bring with me when I go golfing, stuff it into my golf bag. That's the only time. Um, but I, I find it, it, I don't really care for the taste. I prefer a Brita water, but it, it could also be that I go for like the cheapest bottled water that there is, where I can get the big thirty-six bottle flat for like three dollars. Um, That's not a bad strategy, though. You got to drink that stuff fast before the plastic all comes seeps in. into the water. Before the bisphenol uh, takes <laughs> yes, hold. Exactly. Is that what BPA it's called? Free. They're not making that declaration on a lot of those bottles. I'll so tell you that. that. Non-viscous then. <laughs> But here's the thing, though, about the bottled water, right? Because the fact of the matter is we should all have a stack of bottled water in our house because you were talking about the 72-hour rule, right? And if you went to your house right now or you, or your condo or apartment or whatever it is. How about we come is, to your house Would now? you rather fight your neighbors at the grocery store for it later? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But do you have three days' worth of water just for drinking? Do you have three days' worth I of water not, no. just for drinking? Nope. 
Well, I guess it won't be coming to your house then. <laughs> you have Kelly, to hike up 15 stories. Days? Well, because we don't usually drink a lot of water. Yeah, I'd say we have three days worth of, uh, of drinking water in our house because we've probably got a case uh, sitting there. Uh, but I, I don't know. I... I guess I'm just one of those uh, people that don't notice a lot of difference in, in things. I I drink tap water all the time. We do a, we do have a water filtration system, uh, but it, it it makes no difference to me whatsoever. I have I I have never tasted the difference in water uh, since the second move back to Winnipeg when we moved here in the mid '90s. Before they put in the new system. You could tell the difference then for sure. You know, and I did notice a major difference when they opened the new water plant. We did like plant. Jerry. We put the uh, great big water buckets on our shoulders That's and right. hold it back to our house. It's amazing what a billion dollars will buy. Yeah. Almost palatable water, right? Almost. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, give it another try. Seriously, give it another try. Well, I look at it and it's yellow. I'm like, I'm not drinking that. Uh, maybe that's your pipes in your house. Yeah. I've lived no. in two different places. And it's been the same? Yes. Okay. And I'm in the same sort of neighborhood as Jerry right now, and I get a, I've, I don't drink the tap water either, also because you never know when it's going to be a little bit brown. I put it through the Brita filter and... And yeah, so if, it, if I'm in a, a, a town I know where the water is clean, I don't mind drinking the tap water. Just yeah. pretend it's beer. <laughs> Just uh, very, there, there's lots of water in beer. Just very quickly, uh, <laughs> 300 liters a day in the sh- uh, we all use. How long of a shower do you take, Tristan? Um, I don't know. It's usually about 10 minutes or so. Kelly? Uh, probably, I don't know, two, three. Two to three minutes. Two How do you even wash your body in. in two to three minutes? Get in, get done, get out. You can't clean your undercarriage in three minutes, man. That doesn't happen. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> Jerry? Well, there's a topic. It's about a 12-minute shower. Jeff? I would say about five minutes. Greg? Well, uh, oh, I'm a, like a 15-minute guy for sure. I'm <laughs> well, a 15 then 400 guy. liters of water for you. <laughs> Can we leave this uh, w- nugget of wisdom from one of our listeners? Can we leave our conversation here? Jason says, um, bottled water. One of the first major producers was Evian. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Spell Evian backwards. Naive. Naive. <laughs> oh, and Mick says, more hydrated? That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Feels the same way about TFJ as the rest of us. Ah, whatever. What should you do if you are the victim of harassment at work? There's a headline here. Three former Green Party staffers accuse Elizabeth May of workplace bullying. The longtime Green leader flatly denies the accusations and says she's generous and supportive toward party staff. But what do you what do you do if you feel like you are being bullied or harassed at work? Well, let's talk to Barbara Bose, who is president of Legacy Bose Group. We turn to her on many things HR and business related. Barbara, welcome. Good morning to you. Good morning. I am actually in northern Ontario, and I hear you're sending snow my way. Oh, it's a gift. We're, we'll put a pink bow or a red bow, whatever color bow you'd like on that bows. Get it? <laughs> well, I hope I hope it's over uh, soon because I need to come home on Wednesday. Okay. Well, yeah, it's very fast moving, but uh, uh, the the remnants uh, will be uh, waiting for you unless you have someone to uh, shovel your driveway and your sidewalk for you, Barb. <laughs> Hey, uh, Elizabeth May, uh, Brett read the headline uh, and this accusation of bullying. And we've been talking uh, so much about sexual misconduct in the workplace. Is is bullying as as big an issue as sexual misconduct? 
You know what? I really can tell you that bullying is a bigger issue than sexual harassment. Um, I, I was looking at some of the articles that I've written over the years, and I think the first time I wrote about this was in 2002. And after the third article, I was flooded, absolutely flooded, with uh, questions and concerns about women bullying. And believe it or not, women are bullying often more than men. Um, about 60% of the bullies in general are bosses, number one. And I, I find women moving into leadership often are more aggressive than they need to be. And then they end up having um, what we call a queen bee syndrome in that I'm at front in her and I don't want anyone else to take my spot. And so they denigrate individuals below them. It's, you know, it's really disturbing to, to know and to see that happen and to learn about it. Um, what you'll see... There's a couple of things. There's the, they, they do about five different tactics. One is the constant critic, and you, you heard that about Elizabeth May if you read the, read the article, is that you're constantly belittling comments to, to a, another individual. Um, and then the other thing is it's called a two-headed snake, where you're dishonest in indirect personal style. So you're really friendly to me on the face side, but on the back side, you're condemning me, gossiping about me, running me down, etc. And then the other thing, which is part of that queen bee syndrome, is you're the gatekeeper. You won't let anybody uh, make any decision. You're the boss. And you're always trying to play the game of one-upmanship, you know. Um, I give you the silent treatment. I withhold information uh, and resources to do your job. And I frankly have experienced some of that in, in my career path to where I am right now. We also see um, playing favorites, and we also see gossip because – Women don't use their fists, they use their mouth. So what if I am being bullied by my superior at work? What can I do? I mean, especially if I'm scared, you know, how do I take the steps to move forward and report this? Well, this is a really big problem as well, because most of the time, if it's your boss, you have to have a heck of a lot of courage to go up to your boss and say, you know, I don't like the way I'm being treated. And number one, they won't realize it because they're often not self-aware. So if there's fear of doing that, and I, I can tell you that 99% of the people are fearful of doing that, they have to find somebody who can speak on their behalf or raise it as an issue. It could be human resources or it could be someone else that you know that the individual trusts. Now, as well, over the years, uh, most organizations have specific steps in which you should and could follow in your organization, harassment policies, and including in that would be bullying. The challenge is, is that bullying is not really part of the human rights code unless it's bullying related to the uh, discriminatory factors in the human rights code. So people who are bu bullied are kind of left out high and dry unless they can find somebody in the workplace that they can use. I've also seen in many cases where an individual does come forward with the bullying, and yet they're the one that ends up being released from the organization. Yeah, that can so be a huge, kind of a, that's a huge it's, it's issue a, for sure. Barb, gray area. yeah, for yeah. sure. Barb, we always run kind out of, of time. A, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> what are you apologizing for? We'll, we'll have you back. We'll continue this discussion because it's one that's not going away, unfortunately, anytime soon. And we appreciate the access and your insight on this. Thanks so much and safe travels. Barbara Bowes, president of Legacy Bowes Group, joining us on the subject of harassment and bullying at work. 
means it's time for breakfast with the bombers. It's brought to you by the cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca. A better place for you. Joining us today is a Blue Bomber Center, Matthias Gosen, number 61. And uh, Matthias is a very active member of our overall community, a proud Blue Bomber with a new contract. So let's start there. Contra- uh, congratulations on the contract, Matthias. Great to know that you'll be with the uh, Blue Bombers for several more seasons to come. I, not that I know of. I signed a, <laughs> I signed a new deal uh, two years ago. Sorry about that. Oh, but my apologies. Yeah. Great to have that, That's news to me, I guess. Oh, I guess it's news to me. Uh, many apologies, Matthias. Hey, uh, wanted to uh, find out a little bit more about the incredible work that you're doing in the community. We've got a long list of things that you've been working on, including the uh, Blue Bomber, the, the youth football camp, uh, an extraordinary uh, partnership with the Winnipeg Police Association that I know you're heavily involved with. Yeah, no, I think any time that you can help out with youth sports is amazing because, like I was saying before, that when I was a kid, any time I could play football and a pro athlete was there, I just loved it, and it was an incredible experience for me, and I think it's great because I was some a kid who grew up in those kind of programs, going to, after, or going to football programs put on by the professional team in my province, and no, I think it's just definitely a great way just to connect with the community and teach kids a little bit about football. Now, Matthias, I'm just as Greg, it's Brett McGarry here. As Greg referenced, uh, you've got quite the extensive resume of community things. And I, I sat down and started looking at your background information here. And I said to Greg, geez, this guy's done a lot of stuff, um, including uh, something that involved uh, Canadian troops who served in Ukraine. Can you tell us about this trip that you made in the spring of 2017? Yeah, about two players from each team were able to. Uh go to Lviv, Ukraine, and also to Marseille, France, and just uh, hang out with the troops there. So we went alongside uh, Dallas Smith and a comedian, and we sort of had a hangout night with them, sort of just meet and greet, and it was great. I mean, just being able to meet soldiers who serve our country, and even it's, it's so funny because it feels like a little piece of Canada when you're over there in Europe because you meet people who are from Winnipeg, from your hometown, and it's just great meeting them and sort of finding out a little bit about what they do on a daily basis. Matthias, you've been quoted as saying that uh, the Blue Bomber dressing room, the current one, is is one of the best that you've ever been in. And so, once again, apologies on the contract, because it seems (laughs) as though the entire offensive line that you've been working so well with for the last couple of years has re-upped. And so it was confusing you with Patrick Neufeld and uh, Jamarcus Hardrick, who have both uh, re-upped just in the last few weeks here. So to have that unit together, continuity is a word that we hear consistently in the Canadian Football League. It's becoming increasingly difficult to keep guys in the fold with one-year contracts now being a, a reality. Yeah. Talk about why it is so uh, beneficial to have guys stay together for an extended period of time. It may be obvious to some, not so obvious to others. I think anytime you play on O-line, continuity is so important because so much of what you do is communication about, I mean, plays happen within seconds and decisions have to be made in a snap second, right? So you really have to know that the guy beside you, it almost has to be, you can't even speak sometimes. You have to trust the other uh, player beside you. And I mean, a bunch of us have been in the same system now for three, four. I'm going down to my fifth year of the same system, same terms, and it just helps things a lot more where everything's that much more second nature, where you don't have to, where by the time we get to training camp, we're already at a high level. We don't have to 
go to the basics. We've already got that high level, and we just know that, okay, when you're going through a player, going through a game, you trust the guy beside you and every guy on the line to do exactly what we're supposed to do. And I think it sounds very simple, but when you haven't played together for a long time, it definitely doesn't always work out that way. It's Breakfast with the Bombers. We are speaking with Blue Bomber Center, Matthias Gosen. And Matthias, uh, we've spoken to you before about your involvement in something called Break the Silence on Violence Against Women. But for those who are not familiar with your work, can you maybe just give us a, a recap of what it is and maybe talk a little bit about the how important it is now in, in the the era that we currently live in? Yeah, so what Break the Silence is, it's basically a program that we do uh, Myself and a couple other players, we go to different high schools around Winnipeg and some even as far as Thompson. And we talk about things about domestic violence, uh, sexual assault, consent. And we sort of just try to educate these students on things that we think are very important for them to know. And these are things that I was never taught in high school. I know a bunch of my teammates were never taught this in high school. And just sort of talk about issues of victim blaming and just, yeah, what consent really means and how we can all have a better understanding of that. And so we we can all respect each other and that less of these incidents of sexual assault and domestic violence occur in the future. The second overall pick in the 2014 CFL draft, Matthias Gosen, join us now. And you have something in common with uh, Doug Brown, a longtime Winnipeg Blue Bomber, color commentator, co-host of the Blue Bomber podcast, Matthias. That's your uh, uh, participation in Simon Fraser uh, University football, where, where you played U.S. rules, correct? Yeah, we played U.S. rules. We played in NCAA Division Two. We played teams in Oregon, uh, California, Washington, and even as far as uh, Utah. Now, you also had the benefit of of, of traveling uh, to the United States to some of the some of the the uh, games where uh, lots of scouts are present. Talk about that experience because that's sort of going on right now for for uh, several Canadians who are have been invited to these things. Yeah, actually, one of those Canadians was a guy named uh, Nathan Shepard, who's at the Senior Bowl. He played with me at uh, Simon Fraser for his first, I think, two years, and now he's tearing it up. So it's really cool to see guys that you played with now, uh, yeah, tearing it up. And even in my conference, there was a few guys who went on to the NFL. One guy, I think two years older than me, got drafted to the 49ers. So you definitely see a very high level of football there, and there are some guys who are who definitely, definitely got a lot, get a lot of NFL looks from uh, – those schools we play with. We've really highlighted your active role in the community. And ever since I was a little kid, I've always marveled at how accessible the Blue Bombers are in terms of seeing a player on the street in the shopping mall uh, at a community event. You guys are extraordinarily approachable. Do you see that as a responsibility as being part of a of a team like the Blue Bombers? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I think anytime you're part of a team, you want to be able to interact with the community. I mean, the community of Winnipeg has been so welcoming to me. So if I can do anything to talk to people or just yeah, be somebody that's approachable, I mean, I'd love to, I love to be that person and just be able to talk to anybody I meet and talk about the blue bombers. All right. Matthias Gosen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, we appreciate the time and we appreciate everything that you do for this community. Uh, just uh, like we mentioned, it's an extensive resume and good for you. Uh, you're keeping the the good guy. You won the good guy award in 2016, and you're maintaining that uh, that mantra. I'll have to go in and negotiate you, uh, an extension on your contract, <laughs> Matthias. I'll make that happen yeah, for I you. Thought, I was a little worried. I thought you knew something that I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, great to spend some time with you again, Matthias. Thanks for this. Yeah, thank you. 
All right. Well, Matthias Gosen, Winnipeg Blue Bomber Center. Breakfast with the Bombers brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. President Donald Trump will herald a robust economy and push for bipartisan congressional action on immigration in his first State of the Union address tonight. The carefully crafted speech will mark the ceremonial kickoff to Trump's second year in office, and it is traditionally a president's biggest platform to speak to the nation and, consequently, the world. Global National Correspondent Reggie Caccini joins us now live with a preview. Reggie, good morning to you, sir. Hey, good morning. So the headline here I'm looking at, uh, Trump to dial down combative tone uh, and call for bipartisanship. It, we often hear these words uh, used by politicians whenever they have to deliver big speeches or whenever they're, you know, they're, they're inaugurated. We, we need to be bipartisan and work together. Uh, and then very quickly that kind of diminishes. So why, what's going to be different about this particular address tonight? Well, I mean, you have to look. Never have we had such a divided uh, country and a, a divided kind of uh, round of politics down here as we do right now. When we talk about bipartisanship, it really is needed right now because, look, the government shut down two weeks ago because we couldn't come to a bipartisan solution when it comes to immigration. So the president is going to have to make a really concerted effort to stand up there today or tonight, rather, uh, speak from his heart or at least from the heart of those who wrote the script and try to convince that, you know, the Republicans and Democrats both sitting in the room that they do need to come together and they do need to work in order to get things to go forward. Because, look, over the last Last year, the president had very little in the way of legislative wins, and he really needs things to kind of come together to go forward if he wants year two, three, and four to kind of, you know, roll smoothly. You know, uh, during campaigning, Reggie, one of the interesting things that, that journalists and the public like to do was to kind of take uh, the pulse as to whether or not Trump was actually staying on task, if he was using the script or going off script. It's typically easy to tell when he goes off script because he repeats his words over and over again, as I just did, using over twice. But is that going to be part of what people are watching for, to see how religious he is and how committed he is to delivering this message the way it's written? I think that we're going to see him stick to what's on the teleprompter. I mean, last year he didn't do a State of the Union. He just gave a, a, a speech to the you know joint session of Congress, and he stayed true to the message. I mean, he left some lines out. He didn't really veer from the words. Tonight, I would expect that he's going to do the same thing. This is a president. He really needs to get everybody's attention, and he really has his you know big points that he wants to put forward, like the economy and border security and immigration and global battles. And these are things that he really needs the message to get across. And if he veers off script and veers off topic, there's a chance that he may miss something and he's he, he he needs the he he needs to focus on what he's saying in order to get through and like we saw last year like we saw at the inauguration when he sticks to his script he's a little more subdued there's a little less of that bombast now reggie he also could use this just as maybe a, a way to reset i mean he's going into the chamber tonight as the most unpopular modern president to deliver his first state of the union speech with uh, just uh, an average of a 38 percent approval rating over his first year in office 
Yeah, and that'll be evident that he's got such a low approval rating because there are a number of Democratic uh, members of the House who've already decided that they're not going to show up to the address tonight or some of them are going to be wearing a certain pin or some of them will be dressed in a different way. Uh, it's it's all to kind of protest the president that they said that they never wanted to have in place. So he really now is speaking to people. And, I mean, on that, some of the Democrats who aren't showing up are actually putting people in place uh, like dreamers or, or um, immigrants or people who the president has kind of, you know, picked a fight with over the last year. So he's not only speaking to a room of politicians, he's going to be speaking to a room full of people who have either suffered the consequences of his decisions or who are kind of left lingering waiting to see what happens. Are these broad speeches typically, Reggie, the just a grand vision, a uh, little bit of boasting about what's happened in the prior 365 days or so, or will there be hints at future policy within the State of the Union address? Well, I mean, it's usually kind of here's what we've done over the last year and here's what the vision is in order to keep this presidency rolling forward. He's going to do things like talk about the economy. He's going to say that America's never been as good as it is right now. And while it's true, America is doing well when it comes to the economy. This is just a continued process from the previous administration where Barack Obama took an economy that had been tanking, moved it forward, and it's kind of just continued rolling on during Donald Trump. He'll skew it to make it seem it's him, and then he'll continue to push that forward. I think we're going to hear a couple of things when it comes to infrastructure. He's going to tout that that's coming up later on this year. We're expecting to hear an infrastructure bill next month. It's a contentious one, though, because he's going to ask Congress to find upwards of $2 trillion for infrastructure likely by spending cuts because they said it'll be no new money. So these are the things to watch for as to what's to come and then listen to the things that he touts as being accomplishments over his first year. Reggie, what time does the State of the Union Union address begin tonight? Uh, coverage on TV and radio starts at 9 o'clock. president usually gets to the podium around 9.15. It varies in length. Shortest was back in Reagan's era. It was a 30-minute speech. Bill Clinton had the longest at 90 minutes. Donald Trump likes to speak, so if he veers off topic, we could go a little longer than normal. They're usually around 45 minutes to an hour. I'm guessing that would be Eastern time, Reggie, before we let you oh, go. Oh, yeah, sorry. That would be, it's 9 o'clock Eastern time. <laughs> no problem. Uh, the time zones mess us up all the time here. <laughs> Reggie Caccini, thank you so much for this. We appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot. Global National Correspondent Reggie Caccini on the State of the Union with Donald Trump tonight. One, two, three. Time now for Three Things with Tristan Field-Jones. Today is Three Things About Self-Driving Cars. Hi. Morning, gentlemen. So before we get started here, let me ask, uh, Brett, I know what type of car that you drive, but maybe for the listeners, uh, why don't you let us know? Because I'm interested to know what automated features it might have. Uh, I just, uh, let's go with uh, compact sedan. Okay. Do you have any sort of adaptive cruise control or uh, uh, parking assist or anything like that? I don't think you Cruise do, control, right? yes. Parking assist, no. Greg, you recently got a new car and you said it's got all the bells and whistles on it, correct? Yeah, as far as I know it does. I haven't okay. driven it yet. Well, you have to let us know how those automated features uh, work out because... Well, on Jackie's car, we have the uh, sensors that when you put on your signal to change lanes, it gives you the warning as to whether or not there's somebody in that lane. That's, uh, is that lane assist? I believe that is uh, lane departure assist, I think is what they call it. There are so many technical terms for basically the same thing. Right. Uh, the important ones are, and I know the Toyota does this too, where it has the stop where if you don't apply the brakes and there's an obstacle in front mm. of your car, it'll stop the car right away. It's like having your uh, driver's ed teacher in the passenger seat. Exactly. Or some of them that will help you parallel park, right? right? They'll do it for you. Those are forms of call of automation. 
And, you know, it's it, we, we tend to think of it as uh, sort of your regular car and your self-driving car as two separate categories. But especially nowadays, that line gets increasingly blurred. Great point. And now I've, I've got a, 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 rel- a relatively new car. I bought it just last year. It doesn't have any automation except cruise control, if you will. Uh, but I know that some of, car- some of the cars in a similar class, it's a hatchback. Uh, and again, I use Toyota as an example. A lot of them will have that. Uh, if, if, they doesn't, if it detects something in front of you, it'll stop right away. Lane departure, that sort of thing. Well, there are actually, believe it or not, six levels of automation, uh, and they go through zero to five, and I won't go through all the nitty-gritty details here. Uh, But what happens is a level five car is considered full automation. So basically, the car can drive on its own without any human intervention to the point where you don't need a steering wheel. Very few vehicles like that exist. In fact, uh, Audi claims that their A8, which was uh, released, uh, if you will, last year, it's considered the first production car at a level three. And that basically means that it's there's what they call conditional automation, which means under certain circumstances, it can do all of the driving. So uh, the A8, according to Audi, can do all of the driving if it's under 60 kilometers an hour. Brett, could you imagine a situation where you bought an Audi A8 and you wouldn't want to be driving it all the time? Yeah. It, it seems counterintuitive to me that you wouldn't want to be driving an A8, but I understand what they're try, <laughs> trying to well, do here. And, and kind of the irony there is that the cars that'll have the self-driving features on them are the ones you want to drive. <laughs> exactly, right? exactly. So, uh, But that's considered the first production car to reach that level of automation. Now, and the reason we're talking about this is that uh, Ron Schuler, infrastructure minister, announced yesterday that they're working on legislation to allow driverless cars, essentially, or self-driving cars to uh, at least do testing on Manitoba's roadways. And the legislation is in the works. They might even have it enacted by this fall. And because that's the future, it is it is very likely that within our timelines, no one will be driving a car anymore. I've seen lots of features on this. I've seen lots of uh, different pieces on the internet. I've read about it. And one of the key components to a self-driving or autonomous vehicle staying on the roadway is its ability to read the painted lines on the road. That's going to be a huge problem in this part of the world, considering they're covered up three to four months of the year. And yeah. then in the summertime, they're hardly ever painted yeah. at all. So is there going to be renewed commitment to uh, making these things visible? Uh, this is part of the equation that I don't know if they've actually conceptualized. Well, and, and exactly. Now, uh, and, and that all depends on artificial intelligence and computers and that sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, but that's kind of... Thing number one, if you will, in our conversation about driverless cars, there are many different levels of automation, and especially nowadays, it kind of branches. If you guys had to guess, when do you think the first experiment on a driverless car took place? Well, it's typically 20 years earlier than you imagined that it was. It's like cell phones were invented like in the 1960s or whatever. I'm going to say like 1985. Brent? Uh, I don't know. That's my answer. I don't know. Try 1925. <laughs> Whoa, what? This is fascinating. So what happens is the very first experiment in self-driving vehicles <laughs> was known as the American Wonder. And what they did is they took a car in on the streets of New York City. They drove it down Broadway, down uh, Fifth Avenue as well, in the middle of a traffic jam. It was equipped with an antenna. And what it was operated by a second car that followed it. Now, the antenna was connected to motors and circuits and all sorts of things, but right. it got all of its signals from the car behind it. And effectively, this car made it through a traffic jam and nobody at the time, people were wondering who the heck is driving this thing. 
because there was nobody driving it. Uh, that is the cool. very, very first uh, self-driving experiment, if you will. And it's kind of in the uh, optimism of that era, if you will, there's an, uh, an American industrial designer. He designed all sorts of things from, again, uh, pavilions to cars to even theaters. His name is Norman Bell Geddes. And at the 1939 World Fair, uh, he predicted many things. He predicted that by the distant future of 1960, <laughs> we would have uh, driverless and autonomous vehicles on the roads in the U.S., he also predicted uh, before its time the construction of the interstate system because he said there should be no reason for cars to stop inside of towns, that sort of stuff. He was an interesting man to be sure. But he uh, thought that by the 60s, it would be commonplace for roads to have magnetic fields embedded within them to guide cars all over the place, essentially, and they'd be driverless. Evidently, that didn't happen. And, and you know, I think we can kind of see part of the issue already is that technology based on then a would have been really expensive and b you can also mess up magnets with other metallic objects too there were other experiments conducted the first kind of truly a semi-autonomous car if you will was in 1995 in the u.s but this was again uh it wasn't entirely autonomous because they had to control the brake and the accelerator but it did do a trip where 98 percent of the time it did the steering on its own uh and that was from pittsburgh to San Diego. That's pretty wild stuff, Tristan Field Jones. Did we get all three things in there? I will leave you with this little conundrum here. Number three, the morality of self-driving cars. Morality? What here's, do you mean morality? Here's the scenario. There will be a period when self-driving cars and regular cars are on the road together. The car, You're in a self-driving car. The car in front of you stops. Now, the computer makes the decision within milliseconds that it needs to get you out of the way. It cannot apply the brakes fast enough. To your left, there's a family in a sedan mm. to your right. There's a guy in a motorcycle. Mm. Do you, you know, those are your only two options. Do you veer right and cause almost certain death to the motorcycle? Do you veer left and cause potentially fatal injuries to the family in the sedan? Which one of those would protect you more and whose life do you put as a priority? That actually, that actually has to be considered and programmed into these machines. 815 on 680 CJOB, Tristan Field Jones dropping some, dropping some, uh, I'm trying to think. I don't know. It's, philosophy, I mean, if you will. Sure. Philosophy. Yeah. Something to think about. Some deep thoughts on autonomous cars, self-driving cars. TFJ filling in for Shan Levidel for a few days. The Winnipeg Jets embark upon... I believe this is unprecedented, Kelly Moore. In all your years of covering the National Hockey League, have you ever known the Winnipeg Jets to have a 10-game homestand? No, I do not. I, I can tell you for sure, since they returned to Winnipeg, that has not happened. Uh, with the Jets 1.0, I have not gone back into their schedule. I think I might now that you bring that up, just so I can, be, I can offer conclusive evidence. But I don't believe they've ever played... 10 straight on home ice. And they certainly have never been better on home ice no. as they are entering this 10-game homestand. A little bit of a challenge tonight. Tampa Bay Lightning, Thursday night, the Vegas Golden Knights, and then Colorado Avalanche. Three of the hottest teams yeah. in the National Hockey League at some point in the season. Yeah, Colorado cooled off a little bit just before the All-Star break, but they'd rattled off 10 in a row yeah, before the back-to-back -back losses. Yeah. The thing that has a lot of people's uh, eyebrows furrowed this morning, <laughs> and maybe since yesterday, 
yesterday afternoon is uh, who's starting in goal for the Jets tonight? Well, yeah, I, I kind of thought, because we know, and, and Paul Maurice is right, before they went out on the California road trip, they had said, or he had said, uh, that because of all of the travel and the amount of games Connor Hellebuck had played and not getting the All-Star weekend off, that they felt that it was important for him to have tonight off. So we've always known that. Uh, just as, you know, at that time, Steve Mason was hurt, so Michael Hutchinson was going to get the start. But where you thought maybe things might change, and this is where the intrigue comes in, and not being a fly on the wall, uh, and knowing what people are really thinking at uh, Bell MTS Place, uh, but Michael Hutchinson exercised his right to go play in the All-Star Game in Utica, New York. Uh, and so he and la- yesterday, I kind of thought, okay, Eric Comrie was uh, uh, brought back up to the Jets. He's been, you know, resting in Winnipeg since late Sunday morning, early Sunday afternoon. He's their goaltender of the future. It- it's okay to change your mind, but Paul Maurice, after practice yesterday, said, no, Hutchinson's starting. And as I mentioned in the sports a couple times this morning, if you listen closely to Paul Maurice throughout the, the years he's been behind the bench, the decisions are always based on the best chance to win. Sure. So tell me how a guy traveling all the way from the eastern seaboard, you know, and it's not the metropolis of New York, it's Utica. I, I went on there today to find out what the arrival time in Winnipeg would be for a flight from Utica to Winnipeg. And I said, no flights. <laughs> you cannot get here from there. So there's going to be some bus travel involved there, too. So I, I don't know how best chance to win enters into this equation. So then when you have a guy who, I mean, Hutchinson was uh, was away for the All-Star break, did he make the wrong decision by participating in that rather than making himself available here? No, there's no such thing as a wrong decision, uh, Brett, but I think, you know, the decision he made, you have to ask yourself, is that sitting well with the organization? And when I say the organization, I'm not just talking about Paul Maurice. You know, I think you have to take a look at his teammates too. They knew Connor Hellebuck was going to get the day off. And so Michael Hutchinson choosing to play in Utica, he told the coaches, hey, I'm okay with it. And who knows, he may get here in time for the game, the weather notwithstanding, and make 50 saves and and get a shutout and do what he's been doing all season long in the American Hockey League. And for those unfamiliar with what Michael Hutchinson is doing this year and his contract status, etc., it's an interesting relationship, right? Michael Hutchinson has not spoken to the media since his demotion to the Manitoba Moose, as far as I understand. Well, yeah, he he spoke to them just before they took off for California, the the second time he was recalled after Steve Mason suffered the concussion in Chicago. And that's been the only time. That was the only time, yes. So yeah. what is what what is Michael Hutchinson right and, now? Is well, he is he a parachute, a safety valve? Is he someone that the, the, the Jets would just assume be a, somewhere he, else? Like, he's a, yeah, he's a guy under contract. And I guess, you know, he's he's a depth player. And and you know, because Steve Mason's already had a couple of concussions, I guess you would want to have an insurance policy. Uh, because Eric Comrie's the only other NHL caliber goaltender in the organization. So, you know, whether Michael Hutchinson is happy about the situation or not, it goes with being a professional, so you suck it up, buttercup, and then position yourself for next year. But with the decision made to play in the All-Star game, knowing you were going to start the next night against the Tampa Bay Lightning, if I'm other organizations, I'm kind of mulling it around as to, okay, you know, uh, we're as loyalties at this point. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, a lot of this is speculation 
on on my part because I don't really know what the answer is. Well, you can't Paul know Maurice because he doesn't invite me into his no, office. No, they don't and, tell yeah. us anything yeah. anyway. So, yeah. but uh, again, I'm only going based on on things that I do know from the past. Right. You know, and, and it's always been best chance to win. So and, Kelly, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, and, and I'm just going to say, I, I, I just do not understand, unless there is some other agenda involved here, uh, why you would start Michael Hutchinson tonight. I mean, heaven help us if we get to the end of the year and the, the Winnipeg Jets miss finishing first in the Central by one point. Now, it's only one game tonight. There have been other games that they've lost. But you know <laughs> that all of us in the media are going to be saying, well, mm-hmm. the Admiral started Hutchinson against Tampa Bay in that 10-1 loss. No. <laughs> There's a Kelly Moore prediction. 10-1 Tampa Bay. If you've got tickets oh, for tonight, man. you might as well not even go. I actually saw a guy flogging his tickets on Twitter. <laughs> I don't think it had to do with Michael Hutchinson starting. Well, Thanks, yeah. Kelly. We appreciate the insight as always. Uh, yeah. Jets uh, launching a 10-game homestand. Three games between now and Saturday. It'll be uh, lots of fun downtown. Oh, yeah. And uh, the Jets never playing better at home. Let's talk some curling. We have Al Cameron on the line. He is Director of Communications, Curling Canada, talking about Scotty's Tournament of Hearts, the Women's National Championship. And, Al, there are some format changes this year that have even the most savvy of curling fans slightly confused. What's going on? I don't know about that. I think uh, we've used this format at our Canadian Junior Championships for the last five years, and uh, it's it's taken uh, very well there. So, you know, there's always a, a kind of an, an adjustment period. And once upon a time, never nobody understood the free guard zone. Nobody understood the page playoff. And they, they came to, uh, uh, you know, be part of the curling uh, culture in, in rapid fashion. So I suspect that'll be the same case here. But basically what it came down to is we were told by our member associations, you got to have every province and territory a member association represented. So they tell us that. So we got to find a way to make it work. And that means 16 teams, and that uh, means two pools, and uh, that's what we've got going on here in Penticton at the Scotties, and it'll happen at the Tim Hortons Briar in uh, in March in uh, Regina. Now, you mentioned each and every province and territory being represented, but through happenstance, and I don't know how many people like that word, but this is the genuine case for it, happenstance, Manitoba essentially has three teams in this year's Scotty Tournament of Hearts. And I don't hear too many fans in Manitoba complaining about that. Either. No, no, no. It, it, it sure makes a statement about uh, curling in that province, obviously. You know, Michelle Englotz came from Winnipeg, uh, is here as Team Canada. They finished second at last year's Scotties in St. Catharines, but because our gold medalists are also going to be chasing gold for us in Pyeongchang, Rachel Holman's team from Ottawa, the Team Canada title goes to Michelle Englotz. And, of course, uh, uh, Kerry Anderson uh, won the the the, ra- the wild card game last Friday night, and oh yeah, there's a team uh, skipped by Jennifer Jones, <laughs> who's uh, pretty good at curling. They tell me four and zero right now in Pool A, and uh, she basically hasn't broken a sweat yet. She hasn't uh, curled ten ends to this point in any of her four games. Is this a, a sign of the strength of Team Jones, or is it a little bit of a negative mark uh, towards this Pool A? Pool B set up, Al. I, you know what? I've seen her do the exact same thing at 12-team, the traditional 12-team round robin. So let's get that bit of nonsense out of the way that the pools have anything to do with that. They're a really, really good team, and they've run roughshod over the Scotties before. So, you know, this isn't, uh, this isn't uh, an aberration whatsoever. It's just a reflection that they are a very, very good curling team. 
And yeah, there's some there's some tougher teams coming still, no question. I mean, they still got to play Northern Ontario, Tracy Fleury, who's a very well respected opponent, and they finish off their pool against Carrie Anderson on on Wednesday night. So uh, yeah, they've they've had a good solid start. Uh, there's always going to be lower seated and higher seated teams, and the way these uh, events work, you're, you're always going to play the higher seated team towards the end of the round robin, anyway. So not not nothing we haven't seen before out of Jennifer Jones and that team. Now. I'm just looking at uh, Michelle Englott's page, and I, I'm a little confused on this. I'm hoping you can walk me through this. It says that her, when you go to the, your website, it says she's based out of Regina, uh, but I know that she is, uh, she's, I think, uh, is she born in her Winnipeg? Her hometown is Regina. Her hometown is Regina, okay. Yeah. Okay, so she curls out of Winnipeg. Reg- the, team, the team is registered out of Winnipeg, the Granite Club. Okay. All right, thank you. I missed that on the weekend, and I felt rather foolish. So I thought I'll I'll ask the curling guy himself once we get him on the air. <laughs> yeah, with with the changing face of curling and where where people live, each team is allowed to have someone that doesn't live in the in the home province or the the home base uh, of the team uh, that uh, jacket that they may be wearing. Al, thanks for this. I know we had to press pause on this a couple times <laughs> this morning with other things going on. We appreciate it, and I'm loving the I curling. When we appreciate the access. Yeah, no problem, and I'm hoping everything goes well at the uh, the Viterra Championship, the Manitoba Men's Championship, I believe, is starting tomorrow, so I hope the weather cooperates yeah, there, de- and, uh, de- we get to see a great team coming out of Manitoba for the Tim Hortons. Oh, I'm sure we will, Al. Thanks very much. Yeah, that, of course, getting okay. underwear in uh, underway in Winkler. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Behind the glass, Jerry. Tristan Field-Jones filling in for Shanley Vidal today. Thank you for listening to 680 CJOB. And, 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 and,